The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Really nice to be with everybody, and thank you for your courage. Obviously, this is not a common, maybe it should be, but it's not a common reflection for humans to take up. In some ways, I know some of you, I see some of you I know well that grew up on farms and, uh, you know, my parents grew up on farms in North Dakota, my dad in Montana, and we used to go visit a lot. And I noticed from my cousins who were growing up on those farms, you know, they were a little closer to some of these basic truths. And, uh, you know, the more we live in urban areas, the more we tend to be removed from these simple truths. Here's what, uh, I don't know how many of you, hopefully many of you did, listen to Venerable Analio's recorded guided meditations, um, the one on the body parts, elements, and then the one on, on impermanence of the body. He says there, with every breath we are coming closer to death. And coming ever closer to death, we are preparing for death. We are facing it. We are training in the art of dying. We are no longer, excuse me one sec. We are no longer running away from our own shadow. And training in the art of dying is training in the art of living. Death is part of life. We can only live fully when we accept death, when we face death, rather than pretending it is not there. Gradually, slowly, we become whole by allowing death to be part of our life. So important not to turn a blind eye on death and mortality. With this practice, we are facing ignorance head on. This is, this is what most human beings prefer to ignore their own mortality. And the more we face our mortality, the less frightening it becomes. The more we get used to it, the more it becomes natural. And the more we come to be at peace within, <coughs> a deep peace, because we are no longer running away from our own shadow. And you know, what we're really running away from, this is, it's really amazing, surprising, we're not running away from the experience of death. You know why? Because we don't know the experience of death. What are we running away from? We're running away from our idea of death or our attachment to life. But the thing is, our attachment to life isn't to life. It's to our idea of life. Because life always comes with death, the life of the body. Like I said in the guided meditation, you know, there's no birth without death. This is a, a quote from Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a well-known uh, teacher, time meditation monk and teacher uh, in the 1900s, uh, died late 1900s, and, and trained a lot of Western, a lot of the, our senior Western teachers had an opportunity 
to practice with Ajahn Buddhadasa. And even today, the, some of you know um, Santikaro, <clears throat> who uh, was um, Ajahn Buddhadasa's translator. He has a nice uh, Buddhist center in southwestern Wisconsin. And he comes to Common Ground and teaches from time to time. Um, but Ajahn Buddhadasa said, it is usually pro proclaimed eloquent, eloquently that birth, aging, and death are suffering. But birth is not suffering. Aging is not suffering. Death is not suffering. Where there is not attachment to my birth, to my aging, to my death, at, that, at the moment we are grasping at birth, aging, and pain, and death as ours. If we don't grasp, they're not suffering. They only they are only bodily changes. Right? So the you know, birth, aging, and death become a problem because of attachment. So what we're doing with these kind of contemplations, we're not actually exploring our death. I mean we say that it's okay to use that kind of language, but we're exploring our attachment to life and our fear of death. Because that's here and now. Our death isn't here and now, but our fear of death is here, can be here and now if we bring it up, right? And our attachment to our thought, our idea of life, can be present if we do a contemplation like this. So we get to see the attachment to life and the fear of death, and we can make friends with those ideas, those reactions, those emotional experiences, can't we? We can ventilate them with wisdom, that understands, oh yeah, sometimes it feels like this. Which is why I mentioned in the guided uh, sit, um, in the contemplations we were doing, that, you know, we kind of move through a lot, so when you do this in your own way, keeping it in balance, never force these kinds of contemplations, right? You always want to do them because the heart is actually interested, not because you think you have to do it, but because you're interested. And when you lose interest, get numb or something, then do something where you can do it wholeheartedly and feel alive. So maybe open to hearing, or come back to the breath, or come back to the whole body awareness. So that you're really doing that, uh, these contemplations of death and impermanence with like an authentic, relaxed curiosity. And we're really exploring the attitudes in our own mind and unpacking them. This is from one of our elders in the West. He's originally from Sri Lanka, a Buddhist monk, Bhante Gunaratana. But he's been here in the West now 50 years at least, <clears throat> and a long-time teacher at Insight Meditation Society. He's quite old now, uh, probably 90 or thereabouts. And this is a really good book on the Eightfold Path, um, Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness, if you want to track that down, by Bhante Gunaratana. Bhante is just a, a Pali word for like a sir, like a monastic, uh, respectful monastic term. Meditating on the body as a collection of ever-changing parts also helps you to overcome the fetter of greed or clinging to the body. Not that you want to discard the body before you die. You want to maintain the body, wash it, clothe it, protect it. 
but you can do these things without arrogance, without obsessive clinging. As you stop, I'm sorry, as you become aware of the disintegration of the body, its strength becoming feeble, its beauty becoming ugly, its health becoming diseased, you see that change happens to all bodies. You see that there is nothing permanent about the body to which you can become attached. Instead of getting upset, and we should see if this is actually true, he says, or he writes, instead of getting upset, you become humble in the face of this truth. The reality of the body's impermanence is so powerful, so crushing, so overwhelming, that you can automatically, that you automatically surrender. What else can you do? Can you run away from this truth? No. You have no choice but to accept it. Thus, this meditation also helps you overcome the fetter of conceit in the existence of a permanent self. Moreover, you see that everyone faces one more sentence here. Everyone faces the same fears of old age, sickness, and death. Seeing the universality of this condition helps you overcome your personal fear and develop tender compassion for the suffering of others. And remember, like I, I, I mentioned, you know, you don't always have to use your body. Sometimes that might be just too intense. So you can, you know, and some animals are easier than others. Mammals are not so easy, but maybe seeing a dried up earthworm or earthworm, you know, that initially after eventually when spring comes, it rains and the earthworms come out and some get trapped on the sidewalks, right? And then maybe it's close to your, where you walk and you see it the first day, it's still nice and juicy, but not moving, right? And then, you know, if a robin doesn't get it, you see what happens to bodies in a way that may be a little less intense than contemplating your own. And then, you know, maybe use a squirrel that got hit by a car or a deer that you saw on the side of the road. And like I notice that when I'm driving, you know, especially when I go up north or drive out to Common Grounds Retreat property, they're often almost every single time, like I go out to Prairie Farm, Common Grounds Retreat property, at least a couple times a month, and uh, I'll see uh, deer on the side of the road all the time, you know, at least three or four, probably each trip. And I'll note, I, now my mind just like, oh yeah, that deer is a little swollen, you know, because it's had enough time for the meat to rot. And just to sort of like, oh yeah, normalize, this is what happens. This is what happens. And I think I mentioned, uh, maybe last week even, but in the, the land, you know, there's 46 acres out at Common Grounds Retreat property. We call it generally Prairie Farm, but that's just the town that it's near. But we like the name Prairie Farm. Um, but... Uh, they must have slaughtered some of the cows on the land way back when because, you know, there's a, a place where they planted some pine trees, you know, maybe 50 years ago or so, and there's a lot of bones just sort of scattered around, you know, big bones. They must be cows, um, you know, bleached white and beginning to crumble. They've probably been there, you know, I'm guessing 15 years at least, if not longer. Um, so it's just like getting interested and and we got a, had a few people send in 
some examples of this. Um, one person sent an email in and they just happened to be, uh, they couldn't make the program last week, but they listened to it. And then right after they listened to it, they were reading the Star Tribune, the local paper here in Minneapolis. And uh, it was an article about the COVID. And there happened to be a photograph with this article um, in the Star Tribune. And it just showed, did show the face, just showed the chest and the arms and hands of a corpse, somebody like at a wake. And uh, the, because this person had been doing the practice and there was some continuity of awareness, the person, I'll just read what the person wrote here. Um, they write, I have never seen a picture of someone in a casket in a news article, even if it was just part of the body. I immediately felt aversion and almost clicked away before thinking about the lesson, acknowledging the aversion and desire to avoid the image being known, and contemplated how that permanent stillness of the body was part of my future as well. I won't say that I won't say it isn't still a difficult image, but I noticed the subtle shift in my perception of the of the image thought I would share. So this is like in a very practical way, this is how this sort of formal work of coming together and studying or doing a guided meditation just affects the mind stream going forward. We relate to death differently. I remember Guy Armstrong, one of the senior teachers at IMS and Spirit Rock in California, what really wonderful teacher, um, but he he did a temporary ordination in Thailand. So he was a Buddhist monk for a while. I don't know how many months it was. And uh, in Thailand, because it's a Buddhist country, they've in the hospitals, they've built rooms for the monks to sit and watch the surgeries or the um, autopsies. And so he did that after he ordained. He, he did that. And he, he remembers leaving the hospital and he couldn't help but sense that and everybody he saw on the street, like that body, skeleton, flesh, you know, just like really seeing it as that natural, oh yeah, at some point, it's just going to be a dead body. Now, I'm not making any point about what happens to the mind stream at the time of death. We're just contemplating this very ordinary truth that there's this living stuff, what we call living stuff, the body, and that at some point that body took birth, it grew up, some challenges, some health challenges, broken bones, this and that, getting older, assuming nothing terrible happens, old age, and death. And this is what we're living with. This is no surprise. <laughs> so can we integrate that in? And it's really tricky, it's really interesting, important to see how impermanence uh, and our denial of impermanence really operates. Because these contemplations that we've been doing, that remember uh, one of the teachings from the suttas, from the discourses of the Buddha, are uh, we, we are sort of protecting ourselves against these four kinds of ways we distort reality, where we see what is impermanent, we see 
something being permanent when in fact it's impermanent. Or like with the body parts, the tendency is to see bodies in terms of attractiveness in what is not fundamentally neither attractive nor not attractive. It's just stuff, just parts. Or we see something to be personal when it's not really personal, like the elements help us, it helps, takes that personal uh, thought away from the body because it's just sensation and any aspect of my sensation, the hardness I'm feeling with my buttocks against this pad I'm sitting on or the coolness of the air on my skin, there's nothing personal about coolness or warmth. And then the last is the seeing satisfaction in what is not actually satisfactory in, in the sort of deeper sense. So we're correcting these for distortions. This is another email that got sent in, um, in this person's reflection on impermanence. This came a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to save it until we were talking about impermanence. I had a very interesting thing happen last night prior to class. I had coffee with my 23-year-old, and she just talked and talked and eventually shared her long-term dreams and goals with me. Such a beautiful conversation. And then it hit me, in 20 years, which is what she was discussing, I will be 80. <laughs> An old lady, will I still be alive? And then I realized I never thought about my daughter and my grandkids' lives going on without me in them. I thought I would be here and with them until they were old or something, right? These are these unexamined assumptions that are there, not consciously there, unconsciously there. Like there's a, a joke in the Mahabharata, this ancient epic in India, like, you know, uh, BC time. So it's, it's quite old. It's a beautiful story. And the Bhagavad Gita is embedded in the Mahabharata. And one of the little side stories is, it's kind of like a joke. Like the, they're in the in the court of a king, and the advisor is asked, "Like, what's the most amazing thing?" And the answer, you know, of the riddle is, "The most amazing thing is, although everyone's going to die, it never occurs to them that I'm going to die. <laughs> it might occur to me that you're going to die." But somehow we leave ourselves out of that. Now I know that's not always true, but it is interesting that somehow it doesn't come up that much as we're living our day. Like how many times today, now this is, you know, it's not fair asking a bunch of Buddhist practitioners this question. If you just ask people on the street, you know, how many times in the last 24 hours was it really clear in your mind that you're going to die? You know, it, the honest truth would be, very little, probably, right? And it's actually a sign of health if that comes up naturally all the time. It's just like, of course, of course. Like, because everything in life should be reminding us of birth and death because it's happening all over the place. Just like, when's the last time, what, if you're, if you eat meat, you know, did we realize, oh yeah, I'm eating a dead animal? It doesn't occur to us. It's like these are unexamined things. And I'm, I'm not, you know, judging that experience at all. I'm just this whole, um, just examples of how we can remain unaware. So let me finish reading this. Um, as much as I am not afraid 
let's see. As much as I'm not afraid of death, I'm exhausted by life on earth, I am finally accepting that I'm here, and especially now, for a reason in this time of universal transition, but I am deeply afraid of missing them, of missing out on all of their lives, still not seeing that there's no separation. I felt so much overwhelming sadness. Yeah, and part of it is like in this practice of contemplating death, we're grieving, but we're not so much grieving the end of our life, we're grieving our fixed ideas, and we're learning to kind of inhabit the mystery of not knowing. We don't really know what death is, do you? I don't. We really don't know. So it's really like we're grieving the the wrong idea that we think we know, whatever we think we know. Like, partly we might be sort of going through our life just keeping it out of our consciousness. So we're letting it in. But there may be, like this person is sharing with us, there may be really strong emotions that come up. But that's okay. Because as a practitioner, we know what to do with strong emotions. We relax. We try to be curious. If it gets overwhelming, we ask ourselves, well, what can I be intimate with? If I can't be with these strong emotions right now, maybe I can be intimate with a walk around the block or making a cup of tea or calling a friend. And I can come back to the intensity of the emotion when there's more balance and more stability of awareness, right? We don't have to just sort of go right into the fire and get burnt. We can just sort of like I sometimes call it, touch and go, where we open to what's really strong and intense, and then we turn away strategically, like, okay, and the sky's blue. And Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, would say that, you know, like, um, just to keep things in perspective, you know, nobody likes me, and the sky's blue. You know, I'm no good, I've never been good, and the sky's blue. And the, and the floor is hard or soft. And the refrigerator sounds like this. You know, just something ordinary. And we're not denying or repressing the thought or the emotion or the truth of death. We're just placing it in the context of everything else. And that was, I think, the idea that Venerable Analio had with that guided meditation where you breathe in and you bring to mind Someday this will be, you know, there won't be another breath. This, this could be it. This could be the last breath. I don't really know. But with the out breath, you really practice like normalizing, grounding, relaxing, accepting. Yeah, but this is now. It's like this now. And then you breathe in again and you take it up. Oh yeah, but I don't know when it's going to end. And this could be certainly one breath closer. And then you... And this is how we learn how to normalize everything. You can do this with your partners too, and your dear ones, like your children. Yeah, I really care about this person. And you know what? I know that I don't know how this is going to unfold. I don't know. You look at your cat, you look at your dog, and you know, like, Things could happen. I don't know when, I don't know how. 
So I just want to reiterate like how important it is that everybody takes responsibility for the balance. Because, you know, it's the, it's a funny thing about the way our mind is. Um, even though we generally don't like unpleasant stuff, we do like intensity. And these contemplations on impermanence can bring up strong feeling. And sometimes we get a little bit of a tunnel vision because it's intense. There's just this idea to just keep going. So we want this, uh, this sort of breadth of awareness, breadth of mindful awareness that can discern whether this reflection is helpful or not right now. Is it in the direction of non-attachment and stability and balance? Or am I just tripping out on intensity and kind of scaring myself? Well, is that helpful? No, so let's do something else. What can I do with my life, with my mind that's skillful? What can I do where I can be actually intimate? Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, waking up to the way it is. If I can't be kind of interested in this truth of impermanence, maybe I can be interested in the softness of my blanket around me as I lie down in the corpse pose, <laughs> in a lying down meditation pose, and just be with the breath in a simple way. And like uh, I think Venerable Analio says somewhere, if we don't do this work, whether we're aware of it or not, our death, the idea of our death is lurking somewhere, right? Because we haven't taken the time to make peace with it. And this is the thing, you know, um, when we unconsciously or consciously are clinging to ideas of permanence, we've just made reality our enemy because there isn't any permanence. You know, one of the things we see, whether we're looking very specifically at our experience or very broadly, what do we see? We see that life is movement. Everything is always moving. There isn't any kind of set, fixed, permanent, anything. Watch the thoughts in your mind. It's a river. Watch the flow of emotion. It's a river. Watch the experience of sensation in the body. It's a river. Watch, you know, sit at a, a park bench and watch a bunch, a bunch of kids play or stare at a, look out the window at a bird feeder. It's just a flow of activity. Everything is in motion. And so contemplating impermanence is really about coming into alignment what's always been true. And the whole point of the body is the body is kind of this metaphor for everything. So, you know, the mindfulness of the body really brings us close to the reality of life. This is from the article that I was encouraging people to read right at the beginning. It's very short, it's just one page, called The Body at the Center, written by that wonderful teacher on the West Coast, Gil Fronstall. And you can find it in the earlier emails. And by the way, you know, in the Buddhist studies emails at the bottom, right where there's a little button where you can unsubscribe from the Buddhist studies email list, there's also, I think, a little button there that will take you to the archive where you can always, if it's hard to find them on your 
you know, your browser, your uh, email thing, you can just go to the web page that has all the Buddhist studies email archived, and you can get these um, older resources. Vigil was first writing just about how he found that uh, being with the body, um, I was and still am repeatedly surprised by how much awareness, love, and compassion are found in and through the body. I have learned that mindfulness of the body is the foundation of mindfulness practice and one of the best friends we can have for integrating the practice into daily life. And then he quotes the Buddha. There's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to the deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness, clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered in the body, centered on the body. And another place, um, the Buddha says, if the body is not cultivated, the mind cannot be cultivated. If the body is cultivated, meaning alive with awareness, the mind can be cultivated. And I thought I'd end uh, by just sharing the Buddha, you know, comes up with these great lists like, what are the benefits of mindfulness of, of the body, mindfulness immersed in the body, Practitioners, for one in whom mindfulness immersed in the body is cultivated, developed, pursued, <clears throat> taken as a basis, given a grounding, studied and consolidated, well undertaken, then ten benefits can be expected. What ten? One conquers displeasure and delight, and displeasure does not conquer one. One remains victorious over any displeasure that has arisen. One conquers fear and dread. One remains victorious over any fear and dread that has arisen. One is resistant to cold, heat, hunger, thirst, the touch of mosquitoes, wind and sun, creeping things to abusive and hurtful language. One is the sort that can endure bodily feelings that, when they arise, are painful, sharp, stabbing, fierce, distasteful, disagreeable, and deadly. One can attain at will, without trouble or difficulty, deep states of absorption. So it supports concentration. Then he goes on to talk about, because of the deep states of absorption or concentration, even some psychic powers can come from just this practice of mindfulness of body. And then you can imagine the tenth is awakening. He says, through the ending of the mental outflows, Right? So the asawas is the Pali word, the ending of the asawas. That means the ending of our attachment to sensuality, attachment to becoming somebody, being somebody, and attachment to self-view. These are the outflows. One teacher translates asawas as um, unconscious projections of our mind. I like that translation. Through the ending of these outflows, one remains in the outflow-free awareness release, discernment release, having known and made them manifest for themselves right in the here and now. Or another way that someone talks about this awakening as the unprovoked awareness release. I like that too. <laughs>
all from mindfulness of the body. So for those of you who are able to stay, um, well, maybe what I'll, yeah, let me share this uh, and then, uh, but please stay on for just a couple minutes, if you're, even if you're not going to stay for the small groups. So for the theme, because if you're not staying for the small groups, you might find somebody at home that you could talk to about this. How has your work to be more intimate, more present with the body, using these contemplations so that that we've removed some of the baggage, right? Because contemplating the body as body parts isn't the body, but it helps remove a lot of idealism. So we're actually able to be intimate with the body. So how have these contemplations and the work we've done these last eight weeks allowed you to experience the truth, in, in Buddhism we call them the three characteristics, so the truth of impermanence in the body, the truth of unsatisfactoriness. So this we need to understand, like the word is dukkha, a lot of you know that word. But when we talk about dukkha on the deeper level, we're not saying the body's always painful. What we're saying is, the body can never provide me the satisfaction that the ego really wants the permanent satisfaction, right? I've had a lot of nice bodily experiences in my life, but I'm not satisfied. So this is what we mean by how has your work of being mindful, being wisely aware of the body, revealed the truth of impermanence, that the body can't deliver lasting satisfaction, and that as we contemplate the body, it seems less and less personal. Or maybe you're getting a different experience than those three characteristics. So I thought that might be a really interesting topic. And just be honest about that. And of course, just your response to the reflection on impermanence and what came up to you, for you, the feelings that arose for you, would be very useful to share. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.